Melody. Hey, Peter. What's up, Drew? Hi. <laughs> Gotta get that pause just right. Today we have a guest. Guest, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Stephanie McGee. I'm the coordinator of Student Disability Services, Academic Advising, and Student Success Programming here at Small Liberal Arts College USA. I've been here for almost three years, since December of 2014, and come in with a background in disability services and special education and a whole lot of fancy different pieces of paper. So ah, sweet. So we could probably just let you and Drew talk. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> so happy to have you on because one of the things that I remember when I first got here, when you weren't actually here, because I predate you just by a little mm -hmm. bit, was a uh, presentation given by your predecessor about the differences in accommodations mm -hmm. between K-12 and higher ed. Mm -hmm. And it was for me really, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but really eye-opening to understand where students were coming from and to actually understand a number of the things that my colleagues at my previous institution had kind of griped about in terms of, why are they always doing this? And they want me to do all these things and why can't they do it themselves? And then hearing some of those different requirements is like, oh, that's why. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what accommodations are in college mm -hmm. and if you have any of the perspective to bring on what the accommodations are like in high school. Or Drew, you might also be able to chime in on that and sort of student transitioning from high school to college that might have accommodations mm -hmm. to understand like what is going to be different when they get here. Sure, sure. So um, I'm actually I'm going to flip it and I'm going to first talk about what we do in um, pre-k through 12th grade under IDEA sure. and then talk about the differences between IDEA versus um, the Americans with Disabilities Act as amended in OA, the ADA, AA, or just ADA, and then also Section 504 and Section 508. Um, those are kind of the, and that's, I just threw a whole bunch yeah. of letters out, and I will explain what those are, but those are basically the pieces of legislation that oversee access and education type stuff for individuals with disabilities. I'm just going to interject the, the, um, the students who have 504s and IEPs, know those uh, they know that they have that so they're coming into college knowing a little bit about it um, go ahead sometimes they should come into college knowing about that and some school districts do a really great job with that transition and some school districts are still working on getting there so that's that's my di diplomatic way of saying that so in high school when students are identified as an individual with a disability they are provided services under one of two sets of legislation based on their condition and how it impacts their ability to learn in the educational setting. So when we talk about special education, that is governed under IDEA, the um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and it started as public law, blah, 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 blah. I forget those numbers off the top of my head, back in the 70s, and kind of arose from parent advocacy Prior to the um, IDEA being initially enacted, schools were not required to provide any educational services to individuals with disabilities. They could actually simply say, I'm sorry, we can't help your child. Your child can't learn. So that sounds, I remember hearing about, um, <clears throat> I guess it's more recent, in, I think, cognitive psychology about, and growth mindset sort of feeds into this, is that there's the model that you just know what you know, and either you're good or you're bad at it, and so if you kind of flunk that algebra early on, they're like, well, whatever, you can't do math, we'll do other things, we'll leave that alone, versus our understanding now, which is that everybody has a capacity for these things, and that a stumble early on doesn't mean you can't do it, or that something that's difficult doesn't mean you can't do it. But back in the day, if they're like, well, <clears throat> the student didn't do very well, and if they have a disability, they're probably going to have a lots of trouble, then they'd be like, well, they didn't do well now, they can't do well anywhere. I thought it was anywhere. actually more about like, 
like, you know, social movements that were going around. It was, it was more about, so we have a history, um, uh, within the U S so we, we took disability and we medicalized it. We turned it into kind of this medical model as opposed to the intersection of someone's ability to function and barriers within the environment. That's kind of a social justice model of disability. Mm -hmm. So when we medicalized ideas related to disability, we started to push individuals with disabilities out from the um, public arena and institutional institutionalization started occurring. This kind of became a thing prior to and then after the Civil War, the rise in institutionalization for individuals with disabilities. So we had that kind of going on and then a medical model, there's something medically wrong with them. We, they're, they're uneducatable or educable, I think is the word. Then in the 60s and the 70s, there were pushes um, related to the civil rights movement and individuals with disabilities were actually at the forefront of some of the civil rights um, desegregation stuff because they had also been segregated, um, historically speaking, and pushed out of society as a whole. We're, yeah, we don't know what to do. And schools were able to say, we don't have anyone who's trained to teach your child. We can't help your child. Your child would be better served in an institution. And so that's kind of a really rough and dirty overview of what was going on socially and legislatively and kind of in our views of disability and education during that time frame. So then in um, with the passage of public law, blah, 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 it basically stated that you could not, so IDEA has several provisions under it. You have free and appropriate public education providing value. It, it, the standard had been maximum value and now it's some value to individuals with disabilities. Um, so free and appropriate public education, FAPE. So we are providing these services as appropriate for your child's learning needs, free of charge to you, the parent, mm-hmm. or free of charge to you, the student. This is K-12, right. not higher ed yet. So that's one provision under IDEA. Another provision under IDEA is called Child Find. Local educational authorities, also called LEAs, are legally responsible for finding children with disabilities within their district. So you can't say, I didn't know we had homeless kids with disabilities. It is your responsibility to find those children as the LEA, the local educational authority or agency. It's your job to find those kids. That's why you will see ads for kindergarten screenings in school paper. You will see things, are you concerned about your child's development? Come to this screening or that screening or the other screening. There are also schools tend to be plugged in with healthcare providers for littles so that as kiddos get closer to 36 months of age when the IDEA provisions kick in, then their IDEA under the K-12, there's actually early childhood is also birth through 36 months, and that's covered under a different provision of IDEA. But anyway, so schools are required to find children with disabilities, identify what do these children need in order to learn. We as a society believe it is important for all children to have these basic skills. Before that child graduates from high school, they should know these. We need to do what we can, everything we can to ensure that that child can learn. So that's kind of the basic idea for special education services under IDEA. There's a whole lot more to it, but just for our purposes, know that schools are required to find individuals with disabilities and serve them appropriately with special education services if their condition prohibits them from learning in the typical environment with their peers. Mm -hmm. If an individual has a disability that prevents access, then schools are required to provide access under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. So like a physical access thing, but not a cognitive access thing. So I don't have ADHD or a learning disability. I use a wheelchair for mobility, so I need to have ramps installed. That would be a a child who is being provided access as a child with a disability, but they're not receiving special education services under IDEA. They're being served under a different piece of legislation. So that's kind of what's happening in public school with pre-K through 12th grade. Then a kid graduates. So before we go there, (laughs) briefly recap, 
Well, I want to go back to I was right and you were wrong. Okay. 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 Right. <laughs> okay. Glad we could come clear that up. I just want to make sure. I mean, I was over here just waiting for my moment. <laughs> it's your moment. It's my moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, my taxes pay for the school districts to then search out, find children that need help, and then to provide the help that they need, whether that be learning or access. Yes. Good job. And there are complications um, related to the funding thing and oh. federal dollars and federal funding for special education versus local funding versus state funding. Um, but that's, there are entire courses, graduate level, doctoral level courses around those topics. So not for an hour long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so all this stuff. So as a student, I would, if, if I'm involved with this, then I actually don't have to go seek anything out. Everything comes to me. Someone comes to me, tests me, determines what I need, and then pushes me to, or puts me in the things that I need. Yes, but also parents have the right to refuse up to certain levels a child participating in special education. Yeah. So the school is responsible for identifying something's going on with this kiddo based on everything we've seen. This child should be reading and she's not reading right now. So we're gonna need to do some further assessment. Then the school contacts the parents. Hey, your daughter's not reading. We're concerned based on everything we've seen cognitively. She's got the skill. She's got the ability to learn those, but she not. So we'd like to do further testing for a possible learning disability or something going on. We, we, we want to see if there's a learning disability, a behavioral disorder, an, EB, uh, an emotional disorder, something that is prohibiting or preventing your child from learning in the same manner as her peers. Mm. Parents then can say, yeah, no. <laughs> or they can say, yes, for the love of Pete, we've been telling you this is a situation that's been going on for years. What took you so long? Yeah. It typically tends to be more the latter as opposed to the former. And then schools will do their evaluations. Parents also have the right to have outside agencies provide evaluations of those children and to submit that information to the schools for evaluation purposes as well. Okay. So, Makes sense. Okay. Drew, do you have anything to add? Uh, that's that really covers it. I mean, I, w- I want to mention that this is there's a really high bar for entry. It's not like oh, your child did poorly on the spelling test. The you know the the process for qualifying requires a, a lot of like we have to get permission from parents to test. You mentioned that the test that we give is the test that I gave as a case manager is two hours long, and then the school psychs give a whole battery of six or seven or eight more tests. And yeah, we have to go and find. Is there an area of disability that doesn't match with a performance in the classroom? And then we have to show like, okay, well, if there's a, a disability in this area, I'm going to write a goal there. And now is where we talk about accommodations that will help you reach that goal. Yep. Right. So it, it, there's a high bar for entry. Very rarely have I, once in a while, maybe four students in 10 years, in my personal experience, have where the parents have, have declined service. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it was parents asking or the student study team at the at the site would say the teacher would offer it up or the school site would offer it up or the parent would offer it up and say you know can you take a look at my student and you review all the records but yeah you assessment has to happen it's not just like ah, i feel i don't like this kid today we're gonna know and and that's all because of those legal precedents where the where the parents were saying you know african-american students and english learner students were Right, in special percent of the population. If I, my the high school I worked at was eighteen hundred students, we had a one hundred and eighty special ed students. So is that was that ten percent? And that's pretty. Twelve percent of the U.S. population is African American. My number could be wrong, but I think that's it. And it's way more than that in special ed, as African American students mm-hmm. or English learner students are more disproportionately identified. So that all of those. We have to test in the primary language. If they come in and you know speaking Vietnamese or Hmong or something, we have to test yep. in that language. Yep. And rule out is this is this something happening as a result of being an English language learner? So yeah, ruling out those those other options. That you are also required to rule out whether or not challenges that kiddos are experiencing with learning 
are related to changes in the home environment mm-hmm. or things that are happening within within that system mm-hmm. rather than something that is internal to the child itself. So yeah, it is. And currently, the last time I took a look at it, um, IES, I believe, was stating that approximately 11% of students in the U.S. were identified as having a disability. So, so okay. I will point out that if being a poor speller would have got you into this, I would have been in this all. Right, right. <laughs> I totally would have been pegged for that because I always struggle with spelling. We don't, we don't actually test spelling. Yes, I mean. <laughs> so then once an individual is identified as requiring those specialized services for learning, then they have an individualized education plan that is revised on an annual basis or as needed throughout the entirety of their time receiving services in pre-K through 12th grade until they graduate from high school. I'll point out that when Stephanie or Drew refer to an IEP, that is the Individualized Education, education plan. plan. Yep. So, Okay. So then you graduate from high school and you magically no longer have disabilities, right? Right, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're, you're totally cured. Or you graduate from high school and you choose to go on to post-secondary education and find that you have entered a whole new, this is a whole new ball of wax that you're dealing with. So in pre-K through 12th grade, the focus is on accommodations and modifications for educational success. What do we need to do so that you learn? In college, in uh, post-secondary education, it is about accommodations to policies or routines or procedures, accommodations for access. So we're no longer thinking success. We're thinking what are the barriers that you are experiencing to equal and equitable access? Not what do you need to learn, but what do you need to show us that you are learning? Or what do you need so that you can learn, not what do we need to do to get you to learn? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I think I remember hearing this described as, a little differently, that in K-12, the mandate is to flourish. And at college, the mandate is even playing field. Whereas I, our responsibility is to provide the access and accommodation. So if I have a student who needs to have notes taken... And that's just allowing them to have an even playing field. Mm-hmm. It's not going to allow them to like excel beyond their peers or to like right. really go. Right. It's just there so that then they need to do more work than maybe they had to do before because where you know Drew was was putting up these IEPs and setting all the stuff up and basically scaffolding a lot for mm-hmm. what the student is getting, what accommodations they're getting, and helping them manage their time. Here it's you have these options we'll provide to you, and then they have to, or accommodations, which we'll provide upon request, then they must request. With proper documentation. With proper documentation, but they must request, and they must follow through, and they must do yes. more of the work. Usually they don't get a set of options. I mean, it's not like, which would you like? I, so. <laughs> I mean, so I'm, I'm thinking of the, the sheets that I get, which, which will usually be like two or three things. Uh-huh. So this student is entitled to note-taking, quiet uh, testing area, and time and a half on an exam. Mm-hmm. So all three of those are options which they can invoke. So when a student contacts me and says, somebody told me that they think that I may need um, time and a half for testing or something because I seem easily distracted. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk that through. Did you receive accommodations in high school? No, but I'm on Ritalin. Okay. So talk to me about what's going on. Um, It's frustrating to hear because, you know, as a high school case manager, you know, and you, you, you know, know this as well. The transition plan is a legally required part of the IEP yep. in, in the country. It's not just California. You know? yep. So every student beyond whatever it is, it's age 14 and a half or something, has to have has to like be present in the creation of their transition plan, which has post-secondary education. And we have to write a goal. I will apply to junior college or whatever in, in this area. And I have to meet with that student and the parent and say, look, here's the three pages that you want to carry with you when you go to the Office of you know, Student Disabilities at, at your college and say, I need to carry this to my 
to my professors. So at, at, at least in my practice, this is part of our, our system. It's not like I, I didn't make it up and feel special. This was what my district does. Yeah, um, yeah. It's the, so I think that it's the year in which a student turns, it, turns 16, the IEP cycle before that academic year. So basically, yeah, 14 and a half, 15 years of age. That's when you start transition planning. Um, and I have had a few students bring in their transition plan to take a look at it. And that kind of goes, so a student has, summary of performance. Uh, I'm sorry, what? Like at, and also a summary of performance at, at when they complete, when they get a diploma or a certificate, there's two extra pages that tack on top that say, that basically have the accommodations page and their most recent psych report. And, and when all I, of that you need to show. And when I get that complete, document i am delighted because it does give me all of that information regarding um, what is this student's diagnosis how do we know this is what this student's diagnosis is what are the symptoms as expressed in this student so what's going on with this student how do i know this is what's going on with this student and tell me what that looks like in this student's life when i get that full report that is fantastic and i am always delighted sometimes i just get benchmarks Sometimes I have actually gotten a physician writes on a prescription pad ADHD and faxes that to me. So we actually have some pretty specific guidelines. <laughs> you're shaking your head. You're just like, no. But yeah, I, I, see, I see a broad range of things that are brought into my office um, well, when a student comes in. Go ahead. Cut you off. Like, that's not a conversation I've been having for however many years case managing is that ADHD as a medical diagnosis is is there it's a medical diagnosis that by itself does not qualify you for special ed there needs to be that combined with something else and those dsm-4 dsm-5 like requirements for sld are pretty stringent and a mm -hmm. psych a school psych has to look at that and say you know there's more than just like oh you got adhd here's your iep have a good time taking the sat at extended time that, yep yep so with with special ed um your condition has to impact negatively impact your ability to learn in the typical classroom environment in college your condition so the federal definition the ada definition of disability is documented condition which significantly negatively impacts an individual's ability to engage in daily living activities and it, it's supposed to be a long-term condition so generally we say lasting for six months or more or expected to last for six months or longer that's the federal definition of disability so i can and, and then then it's so what how does it affect a student's ability to learn in the classroom versus how does it affect a student's ability to engage in daily living activities so there are some students that i work with who have diagnoses of generalized depressive disorder or generalized anxiety, major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder that would not qualify for special ed services in high school, absolutely qualify for accommodations based on the impact of that condition on their ability to engage in daily living activities and then what those symptoms look like that need accommodating in the academic classroom. So I'm talking, when I'm working with students, I'm trying to find out, okay, what's going on with you? How do we know this? And how does it affect you on an ongoing basis? And then what are the barriers to access that you experience in an academic setting or housing or food service setting? What, what are the barriers to access that you're experiencing based on the intersection of your condition and the environment? So that's what we're looking for for accommodations in higher ed. Go ahead. Uh, Drew, did you have something I thought you were about to say? And then there's something I wanted to, to say, but jump in. Uh, I think you covered it that, that there, okay. all of this stuff is, is, is required to have evidence that backs it up. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the testing that we do, the, the formalized testing that we do to support all this has to have permission from an adult. Mm -hmm. You know, or the, the student is 18, they can sign, but uh, that doesn't happen often. And I mean, it doesn't happen that the student's 18 and not already graduated. So I, it just, I just wanted to be very clear that this is not like I feel like I need help in class. Like the bar is very high to get right. to um, qualify. So one of the things that you that I heard when you mentioned is that you have you know, um, 
was it major depression or generalized anxiety, which would not lead to having uh, special education requirements in high school, but yep. would here. Is that because this looks more broadly and that, you know, the assumption maybe is that uh, colleges are residential or and or sort of more of your life and therefore having depression may not qualify as something in high school, but does qualify you when you move to college? So... In order to register as a student with a disability for student disability services, you have to meet that federal definition under the Americans with Disabilities Act, period. Then the next step, so you have, so Melody comes into my office. She has generalized anxiety disorder and Tourette's. Okay, so Melody and I talk about it. Melody submits documentation to me. Um, we discuss, so what barriers to access are you experiencing in the classroom, your residential setting, or in food services? And Melody says, nothing really. Okay, so talk me through what it looks like when you're engaged in testing. Oh, I love taking tests. I'm awesome. Okay, so talk me through what the symptoms of anxiety are as you experience them. Well, trees make me really anxious, but if I sit with my back to the window so that I can't see the trees, they can't see me, and I'm fine. Okay, so talk so me through. Issue. <laughs> and, and I'm using I'm using really yeah. over the top examples, right, right. really super over the so, top silly. But right. in that instance, then. If Melody's not experiencing barriers to access based on the academic policies in her classrooms, she doesn't need accommodations. There are no barriers that she's experiencing. If, however, she experiences symptoms of anxiety such as racing thoughts, difficulty um, accessing content for 15 minutes while I pull myself together and get my anxiety spiral of doom settled, then that might be a situation where Melody might require extended time for testing. If Melody spins into an anxiety spiral of doom when her peers start submitting her exam before her, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have this done yet? What, what, why I don't know this, I'm going to fail, I'm going to be homeless under a bridge, then perhaps Melody might qualify for a reduced distraction environment for testing purposes. But she may, but she may not, she may not need that extended time for testing. It's based on what her needs are based on her symptoms in your class. Mm -hmm. I have students who have medical conditions that would qualify them, absolutely qualify them for accommodations and housing that they never, ever, ever have a conversation with their faculty members about possible accommodations because they're not experiencing barriers to access in the academic setting. They just need a refrigerator in their dorm room for their insulin. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the barrier to entry for registration for student disability services in higher education is lower than special education, but the services that are provided are always based on that intersection of condition and environment. And I may have a low barrier for registration as an individual with a disability, but if you come into my office and you register for student disability services based on an evaluation of you as an individual with a language-based learning disability, and then you inform me that you need to have permission to, let me think, you need unlimited time for testing forever. I need to turn all my assignments in in June. Yeah, so, okay, what is, we would, we would be like, we would then look at it, and, and I would say, okay, talk me through the barriers for access that you're experiencing. Talk me through how this is something that you require for access, as opposed to, wouldn't we all love to be able to turn in all of our things in June? Then we also talk about what is considered reasonable. So the other thing in higher education about accommodations is that accommodations um, must be reasonable, i.e. not constitute a fundamental alteration to the nature of the learning activity, environment, pedagogical purpose, what have you. So it, it's about equal and equitable access while still meeting learning objectives and demonstrating content acquisition. So for instance, that June, I don't have to turn anything in until June, that's not really reasonable. 
I'm, I'm really sorry, but our classes are on a semester-by-semester -semester basis. Explain to me how that is reasonable access to your college algebra class that you're taking this fall. Do I as a, so if that's someone, if, if somebody actually made the case that it seemed reasonable, but can I then come back as a, unlikely, but can I then come back as a faculty and say, turning everything in the semester is not reasonable for the physics class because we build on everything from week to week and then waiting until the end of the semester to turn things in means that there's there's no way to assess how they're doing as they go forward, setting them up for failure when they try to take this, do everything at the end of the semester and then face plant. Yes. Okay. Short answer is yes. So, if you can justify it from a pedagogical perspective or from it's wholly unreasonable for you to turn in all of your work for your bachelor's degree after you've been here for four years, are you kidding me? If you can make the case as a faculty member that it is unreasonable, then that is absolutely, then we'll say, well, I'm sorry, but that's a fundamental alteration to the nature of the class, the exam, the activity, what have you. I have had students come into my office and tell me that they have to have true-false questions and that's it. Huh. Oh, no. And I'm then sorry, that's we not the way this class works. I would love to take a true-false physics test. Then we talk about... I, you would be surprised. I'm pretty sure I could write some stuff that would could. fail you so fast. But I know, anyway, but I think it would um, be awesome. So then we, talk about, then we talk about the difference in learning objectives associated with the different types of tests, or we talk about the different um, types of learning assessed by different types of tests. And typically I say, you know, I need you to try to explain to me how that is necessary for equitable access. Well, because I would do better if they were all true-false questions. I'm sure many individuals <laughs> would do better if, if they only took true-false exams. However, how is that necessary for equitable access? So I often go back to this equitable access. I have had students say they, they have to have unlimited time to complete assignments, and then we talk about when are you provided with the assignment sheet on your syllabus? Or, or when, are you, when do you get that assignment? Well, it's with my syllabus. Okay, so you've had the entirety of the semester How to plan ahead, <laughs> to plan ahead to do this work and to manage your time effectively and appropriately. Do you need to come to my time management workshop that I'm offering yes. to all students? Yes. Do we need to talk about academic coaching that I am happy to provide to all students under my the, the student success strategy or student mm. success programming yes. act? I want to move on to that, but I want to recap okay. a couple of things before sure. you move on. One is that the population of students that are coming in for student disability services are, are different in college than in high school because of the different bars, right? That the special ed in, in high school is quite high, whereas the accommodations for someone with depression, they may not qualify for special ed, but they would qualify for accommodations in college. So we, we're starting to change our population as we come into college a little bit. Somewhat, potentially, Somewhat. yes. Okay. It, it is less common that individuals with intellectual disability mm -hmm. um, attend courses in post-secondary institutions or in higher ed programs. Mm -hmm. There are some colleges um, and universities that have programming for individuals who are pretty severely impacted, mm -hmm. who are fairly impacted cognitively mm -hmm. by whatever's going on with them, um, and may have an intellectual disability, but that's, yeah, yeah. But, it's not the way we're really set up, and, and part of the th thing is also that the well, look to, to to qualify as intellectual intellectually disabled, which we used to call mental retardation, which is again this is a medical diagnosis. Yep. So I'm not being you know yep. unpolitically correct. That's the medical diagnosis is mental retardation, uh, with, meaning that your IQ is what a standard deviation and a half below the yep. the norm, so 68. Mm -hmm. um, there's not an accommodation that you can reasonably put in place that's going to, you know, that's a person whose IEP goals would have been tying the shoes independently, walking across the street without getting hit, washing your hands, brushing your teeth. So, if, you know, like you said, there's programs for those, mm -hmm. for those students, and, you know, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> and, and so I think one of the other differences is this requirement for, uh, I forget the way you said it, but, like, it can't be too too large of a burden, unreasonable burden on the college, mm -hmm. which I think is probably a little different than the standards for a high school where it's... I think that that's why the bar is so high for, you know, accommodations is nearly the last thing we look at, right? We assess for an area of need or two or three areas of need. 
each of those areas of needs I have to write a goal for. If it's in you know math numeracy or, or reading comprehension or something, I write a goal in that really specific focused area. And then we look at what accommodations does this student need in order to reach that goal in within a year, in a re, you know in that amount of time before the next meeting. And then we look at what placement of classroom will allow those accommodations to be put in place. Mm-hmm. So it, it, accommodations is nearly the last thing, and it's really tightly focused on, again, like asking for the, what is the need here? It's not just like a shopping list of, I'd like extra time. I'd like right, this. I'd right. like the, the other thing, so there is, um, and, and I want to be careful with the word accommodations because there is a little bit of a difference, um, accommodations, modifications and accommodations in pre-K through 12 as opposed to accommodations in higher ed. So when we say accommodations in, um, like in high school for, for students that are taking, you know, Algebra 1, when we're talking about accommodations there, teachers may actually be utilizing really good differentiated instructional methodology, so they're changing their instructional methods. Mm -hmm. In college, it is far less about, I'm trying to get you to change your instructional methods, and what do I need to do to get this barrier out of the way for the student? So I am not going to tell you that you need to change up the way that you deliver your lecture content. I'm going to say, work with the student to identify, okay, do you need audio recording or do you need a note taker? Do you need um, to request copies of PowerPoint slides ahead of time Mm -hmm. or outlines of notes if those are available so that you're able to stay up with the professor? What, What in that way do you need so that you can access that content as opposed to, Peter, for this particular student, I'm going to need you to kind of modify your instruction in this way. Um, this particular student will need you to modify their homework assignment so that they're only doing seven problems instead of 14, or we need you to do this, or we need you to, we're so, not, we're having the student. Right, so again, there's, there's this focus from seeing what the instructor at, a, at the high yes. school level, secondary level needs to do to accommodate the student to now, what does the student need to do or have me do that minima, minimally affects the way that I you know, deliver my classes? Mm-hmm. Because basically when they leave here, all that is out, out the window, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like they can still, if they have a wheelchair, they still need wheelchair accessibility, but like that is it, you know, basically all that's gone and now it's, there's nobody looking out for them. They have to be advocating for their themselves unless it's something that's been legislated yes. for. Yes, and one of the things that I work with students and that many individuals um, uh, at, at institutions who work with college students with disabilities, um, we try to work with students to develop self-determination and self-advocacy skills. Mm-hmm. So self-determination is knowing that I have choices and how to make those choices and telling you what I want. Self-advocacy is primarily telling you what I want and what I need. Mm-hmm. So they're very closely linked. Um, you can't really self-advocate unless you have some self-determination skills. And the students that are coming into higher education, many have amazing self-determination skills and like I want to hug their sped teacher because they did a great job preparing that student some we're still working on it um, and so they're mad at me in my office because I say no I won't do that for you but I will help you figure out how to do that what do you need me to do so you can do this by yourself if I get hit by a bus tomorrow that kind of thing then those students, hopefully when they leave college, not only do they have the content that they have spent a lot of good money or gone into significant amounts of debt in order to learn, but, here. but <laughs> they also but they also are able to self-advocate with their employers or they know when to choose to disclose and when to choose to not. They know, oh wait, no, this is some discriminatory nonsense. Um, This is a violation of my civil rights as an individual with disabilities because all of this accommodation stuff that we're talking about is related, it's it's civil rights legislation. It is about equal and equitable access and and it's, it's, yeah, it's civil rights stuff, sorry. Okay. Which is why I was right. Yeah, it's all, it's all, all of that. I think public law 19 whatever was. Uh, it's 91, 142 maybe, 154. Right. Yeah, and, and that was that lawsuit that created it was. Well, I'm I'm speaking out of out of. I've, it's been seven years since I finished my credential courses and took the class, but mm-hmm. I think this was because of a lawsuit about invoking the 14th Amendment mm-hmm. of, of of equal protection. Yep. 
and that's where it all like kind of has snowballed out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm paraphrasing. Sure. <laughs> and then, and then there are also so then there's also um, there was a Supreme Court case in the '80s um, that led to the Olmstead Act, which is also about segregation and where individuals with disabilities receive services and supports. Um, are they segregated into their own little corner in the basement of the school? Are they segregated to their own little HAB Center campus where they don't interact with individuals within the community? Habilitation Center um, campus where they don't interact with individuals within the community. Are they segregated to this is the dorm for students with disabilities. You live here mm-hmm. as opposed to we meet your needs in the dorm room that you're in right. or the class that you're in or whatever. So this sort of is moving us a little bit in terms of student services, mm-hmm. which is different than student disability services or student accommodations. So I think, mm-hmm. tell me about that. What, what is that? So I, I mentioned kind of um, multi, wearing multiple hats. When I wear my student disability services hat, I am looking at what do I need to, what accommodations do we need to provide to this individual student based upon the symptoms of their condition in order to ensure that they have equal and equitable access. When I wear my student success programming hat, that's the other part of my title, I am working with and student success program, student success programs or um, student success services are available to any student Um, on a campus. So when I'm wearing my student success programming hat and I talk about academic coaching, that is not an accommodation for access. That is a success strategy and I will happily provide academic coaching or individualized support um, related to academic strategies. How do I learn? How do I college? Um, For students regardless of what label we're using with you. You need help figuring out how to use a planner? Come see me. You don't know how to break down the components of a large assignment and do a little step at a time because everybody tells you to do that, but nobody showed you how. Come in and see me. I will walk through that activity with you in a step-by-step way so that I'm scaffolding your learning. I've done this with students with high-functioning autism and students who just are high-achieving and want a little help or students who somebody said you might be helpful, so I'm going to talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, so the student success programming, those services really are for any student and it's one of the nice things about institutions that are really focused on providing supports to students from a student development perspective. So what do we need to provide so that you learn how to do these things so that by the time you leave us, we know that you've met all of the learning objectives associated with a degree at small liberal arts college or large R1 university. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so okay. you're talking about a, it seems like a number of different programs and I think here there are a couple larger umbrella things like the writing center might fall under this that Melody runs the learning center I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely like that's that's the that's the the, tu- the tutoring right the learning center so that's like math tutors and <laughs> Oh my lord. Okay. Maybe not so, tutors, but Institutional structure. We have the Learning Center, which houses the Writing Center and houses the Tutoring Center. Okay. And both of those centers are student success programs. Okay. I got that part right. Yes. And our Coldery Center is a larger part of that. Yeah, we use so so many. Coldery Center, Learning Center, and then Tutoring and and Writing Center? Yes, yes. Yeah, yep. but within the Coldery Center, there are also other student services. Like, yes. Such as? In, like, international education. Mm-hmm. And then also, like, career services and internships and community service. And, oh, so um, we can also do academic interest inventories to help students identify what might be a good fit for them the as an academic guard. major. Uh, <laughs> a crossing guard. I can help students learn how to cross <laughs> safely. <laughs> Helen Lodge has a whole, our, our director of the student housing has a whole thing that she does as far as how to cross the street safely. She includes a wave. So, but, but yeah, so within, the, within our academic assistance center, uh, the Coldery Center, we do offer a wide variety of resources for students. We're kind of um, a, one-stop, a one-stop shop for 
what you need to be academically mm -hmm. successful or to plan a career. So in this case, it's I'm having trouble studying or I don't know what I want to be doing or I know what I want to be doing and I want to go yep. have some, some experience with that before I'm actually on a job. So wherever you are at in your mm -hmm. studies, there's somewhere in there from... I just got here. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I need I need help beyond simply time management. Mm -hmm. I have a condition all the way up to. Yep. I want to work at the Sea World. <laughs> Stephanie's in charge of, but is different here than might be at other locations. She's technically in charge of advising, but we as faculty do the advising. She like helps us, you know, like get our stuff together and like not be dumb sometimes. Um, but other student success centers are, are advising offices because they have full-time advisors and so there's also advising for like, well, I want to study abroad, which is also available in our Culinary Center. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you need to talk to your advisor about how if you take a semester abroad, how that might affect your credits and if you're still on plan for graduation and they do like degree audits and those kinds of things with the registrar. So other locations might have the, an advising center within their student success center. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only one that I actually remember was the uh, UW-Madison, there was the McBurney Center, which has a fantastic reputation for having, I don't know what, uh, I never had a student who, who came in with stuff from, from McBurney, but it, uh, many peers, graduate students who did, and like all the paperwork was always in order and very clear in terms of like what accommodations they needed. Uh, you know, sorry. it was is very much sort of like, here is this. It was very clear and spelled out. It was very clear what was required and asked of us. And, and so they had a very good reputa reputation, at least on the instructor side mm -hmm. of things, for how well it seemed to work. I have no idea on the back side of that <laughs> if there was any, if they were having problems with students who were like, I need double time because. Oh, they were. <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we, we have some very interesting conversations on some of my professional listservs. <laughs> very interesting conversations and much of what I do um, and the changes that I've made since my time here at Cadi has been as a result of either guidance from OCR, that's the Office of Civil Rights mm -hmm. um, under the Department of uh, Education at the federal level, either under OCR rulings and OCR guidance or from DOJ Department of Justice guidance on things related to housing or kind of what's considered best practice through the professional organizations mm -hmm. that I'm a member of and then just the conversation amongst myself and my peers nationally and internationally. We have some members of our listeners that are Canadian and couple from the UK mm -hmm. and, and just have you dealt with this? Oh, I had a student tell me that because they had a traumatic brain injury, they required a vocabulary bank. Has anybody had this before? Or because of this, or because of that, or because of the other, or this individual because of a brain bleed that they had in infancy. Their short-term memory is not so great, and so they need a note card as an accommodation for access. Has anybody else seen that? I haven't had a student come up and tell me. I have had students tell me they had to have notes on exams. And so then we talked through, well, where is the barrier to access? What barrier are you, are you experiencing demonstrating your learning? Well, I should have my notes for my exams because I would do better, as would we all. Yes. So. So is there anything that you want students to know about coming in to talk about disability services accommodations or into the student services, you know, the student success. Are there misconceptions the students have? Is there uh, something you just want them to know that they don't seem to internalize that, you know, all five of our listeners could then... <laughs> we, have more than we have more than five. You're posted on our incoming students' Moodle page. It's, it's the link is there. We talk you up. When you are thinking about accommodations as relates to a disability. It is about need for access rather than what would help you do better. What barriers do we need to get out of the way so that you can show us your brilliance rather than we're going to work hard to teach you so that you reflect our brilliance. And then with regards to other services, tutoring is not remedial. Tutoring is not remedial. Tutoring is not remedial. 
use <laughs> use the resources your tuition has paid for. Yes. If you have tutoring services available and you are not using them, you're silly. You are a very, very silly person. Make use of those resources. If we're not challenging you, if you are not finding yourself challenged in your content classes, your professors need to work harder because college is about challenging and pushing students to really grow academically and, and in the way that they engage with their content and develop that criticality that we talk about so much in higher education and critical thinking, critical thinking. Problem solving. Yeah, if you're not, if you're not struggling to wrap your mind around the content just as an average everyday student, you need more advanced classes. It's, and if it's you are not remediation. Go get to the tutoring center. Even if you're not struggling, even if you don't feel like you're struggling, go to the tutoring center anyway. You are going to increase the amount of content that you are really proficient with if you're working with those tutors, if you're working in study groups with your peers. Yeah, it's not about remediation. Drew, any questions? Any, any final thoughts? I don't think so. I think that was a, a really thorough covering of the entire topic. <laughs> like, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Woohoo! Well, and I think that, like, what Stephanie's saying ties into things we've been saying through this whole podcast, which is go ask for help or go ask questions because, mm-hmm. like, if you're like, well, I'm not sure how to break this assignment apart. Well, one, you can go to someone like Stephanie or the tutoring center. Tutors are designed, are designed. they're trained, they're also They are designed. robots. <laughs> uh, to help with those kinds of things, too. Um, so, like, it's all about knowing what's available, using those resources, and asking questions when you're not sure. Email your professor. <laughs> What? Email your professor with those questions. Dr. Hyland, I have no idea how to break down this 20-page paper on astronomy that you told me I had to write. I'm mm. so confuzzled. Please help Smiley me figure emo- this out. Smiley emoji. Smiley emoji. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Wink face. I'll be by tomorrow at 11.45. Uh, as long as that email is coming three weeks before it's due and not like the night before, uh-huh. it's a little late. Uh-huh. Absolutely. That's the time management for you. That's why I put the smiley emoji in there. <laughs> Soften that blow just a little gotcha. bit. That's adorable. Well, and, and back I mean, to the time management thing, I'm just going to plug this one more time. I didn't get a notification today that Stephanie's doing a workshop. Everyone thinks they manage their time, or a lot of students think they manage their time well. And then I hear, here, I heard it today. I just work better under pressure. And I'm like, you can tell me that all you want, but I'm not going to believe It is at this point, dear listeners, that my battery ran out. So unfortunately, I don't have the rest of our conversation. But we have done most of it. So sorry about that. I'll have better technical stuff next time. If in the meantime you want to send me a question or have us repeat this, I guess, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Hyland, D-O-C-T-O-R-H-Y-L-A-N-D. Or for something longer, you can reach me on email. I'm peter.o.hyland at gmail.com. Sorry for the technical difficulties. I'll see you next week. Bye.